Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. And F.W. Boreham, toward the end of his life, he said, I have one regret and if I had my time over, I would do this differently. I would preach more about God, who He is, so that others might, he said, catch a glimpse of the Saviour if they just got a glimpse of Him. When we do something wrong, we have a couple of options. We can be regretful or even remorseful, but it's a whole new step to be repentant. Repentance is an act of humility. It acknowledges our rebellion. And if we don't, well, there are consequences, hurt and sometimes physical symptoms. It's not a good path. Shall we explore it further with Dr. Corbett tonight as again he opens Lamentations? When you're wrong, you're wrong. Father, we've already read, we've sung about and we've heard from others about what the power of the Holy Spirit can do that no man can do. Father, as we opened your, open your word now in what for many people will be foreign territory in the word of God, we pray that you will take this ancient passage of scripture and you will shock us, you will surprise us, you will speak to us in a way that it nurtures our heart, informs our mind and puts a fire in our soul. Pray, Lord, that our hearts will be softened in your hands so that, Lord, you can help us to see people in the way you want us to see them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, please, to Lamentations, chapter 1. I want to remind you of what we have seen so far. And I'll remind you that Jeremiah has written this at the end of the, well, at the fall of Jerusalem. This message, and I'll be reminding you of this in a moment, but this message is when you're wrong, you're wrong. And you'll see why um, it's called that in a moment. So this, this whole book of Lamentations is five chapters. Each of the chapters, with the exception of chapter three, takes one verse of the Hebrew alphabet and commences each verse with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, which is why you'll notice all the chapters except chapter 3, uh, which is doing something also with the Hebrew alphabet, but it's doing a little bit of um, a mathematical thing with it, is 22 verses. Jeremiah's lamenting Jerusalem's fall, and we've seen that a lament in Scripture is normally done poetically. It's done with a rhythm to it. It's done not quite with a rhyme, but, but certainly with a rhythm. We see David lamenting the death of Jonathan and Saul. We see others lamenting. Um, we see Jeremiah lamenting um, some of the kings of Judah. And now in this, this book of Lamentations, we see him lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. So it's, a lament is an expre expression of sorrow. It's uh, an expression of grief as well. So that's a, that's a lament. It's, um, it's not something that, that is an everyday occurrence, and it shouldn't be an everyday occurrence. But it does remind us that life is sometimes punctuated, seasoned, peppered, salted, garnished with moments of incredible sadness. Uh, those things often happen around loss, around times of death and injury and passing, and fair enough. So here we have a moment a season in Jeremiah's life. It wasn't the end game. It wasn't where Jeremiah camped. It was a moment. We see that this, if you're reading through Jeremiah, you want to know where Lamentations fits. It actually comes 
at the end of chapter 39. So at the end of chapter 39, bang, Jeremiah writes Lamentations, the fall of Jerusalem. We see also that um, in, in opening up Lamentations, he introduces us to his love for his city. And we've seen that there's a, a risk when you love. The risk of loving is you could get hurt. You could get hurt. In fact, you cannot love unless you risk. In fact, the deeper you want to love someone, the more you have to put on the line, the more you have to risk. We call that vulnerability. And if a husband and wife have become stagnant or stale in their relationship, it usually means someone's stopped making themselves vulnerable. And when two people can be vulnerable and increase the risk, the risk of love, they will discover intimacy and joy that is attainable in no other way. And Jeremiah is experiencing the pain of risk. And what is the risk that he took? That he could be hurt, that he could be betrayed, that he could be let down, that he could have his love shown to the other, not returned. And that is indeed what's happened. So Jeremiah has told us of the pain that he's gone through in his heart as he looks at his city. A city that's in ruins, it's smouldering, the Babylonians have come in. There was a siege for several months and the Babylonians have come in and they're a little bit ticked. They're a little bit ticked that Jerusalem didn't pay its taxes or tribute, didn't do what the, the king of Babylon wanted and they've come in and they have just killed on a rampage. They've gone on a killing spree. And Jeremiah will refer to that. Uh, they took the young, fit and healthy boys and girls as slaves and they killed everyone else, essentially. Priests, elders, and those who identified as prophets have been butchered. So Jeremiah is telling us of his heartache as he has witnessed these events. Lamentations, we also see in chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 11 and 12, particularly verse 12, is what we call a foreshadow of the sufferings of Christ. In verse 12, we see almost a verse that almost comes out of the mouth of Christ on the cross. It is nothing to you, all you who pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. And so it's a foreshadow, the suffering and the shame that Jerusalem experienced. And Jeremiah uses incredibly graphic language to describe the suffering and shame of his city. He describes it, and to, I know that there are some children here, so I'll be a little bit more discreet than I was when I first mentioned this, but of a, of a, a woman who is having her monthly cycle without using any protection and it becomes evident on her skirt. And, and Jeremiah says it's, it's like a woman who goes out with a filthy skirt, and that filthy skirt is in speaking about that kind of cycle. And not only, you can imagine how shameful and embarrassing that would be, but Jeremiah says, and that's not the end of it, she's then encircled by these people that she thought were her lovers, and she's raped. 
shame and humiliation. And then the scripture indicates that that shame and humiliation was a fraction of what Christ experienced on the cross for you and I. So now we're coming down to verse 18. And again, I remind you that as Jeremiah now switches voice, he's gone from speaking about Jerusalem and now he speaks as if he was Jerusalem. And this is when you're wrong, you're rung, and you'll see why in a moment. Let's, let's have a look. We're reading from verse 18, and it says this. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. So now he's speaking as if he was the city. And it sounds like Jerusalem is now going, what on earth have I done? What have I done? We read the opening statement of this verse. The Lord is in the right. And that is striking because we've got a city whom Jeremiah pleaded with for 40 to 50 years to turn back to Christ or to turn to God and they wouldn't. They claimed to be in the right and they claimed that Jeremiah was in the wrong. And so now the city says, the Lord is right. The Lord is right. And there's a, a difference between being found out and feeling the regret of being found out, feeling the remorse of now everyone knows I've done something wrong. So there's a difference between these three words, regret, remorse, and repentance. There's a difference. And when you think, as I do, as I tell you, as I've been pondering this passage all week, and I think, God, how can I use this text? How can I take this text and pastor, shepherd, guard and guide and feed those you've entrusted into my care. How can I do that? And I had to think, well, what's my ultimate goal here? My goal is that you will die well. My goal is that you will die well having heard what you've heard today. Because what an utter waste if I become an impressive preacher and impress you tremendously with my rhetoric and eloquence and you end up in hell. What a waste. And every parent should feel that their parenting responsibility is to help their children to die well. Nespa, it should be that we want our children to know Christ so that, God willing, they outlive us, they die well. And we are going to see that heart cry and lamentations as Jeremiah again takes on the voice of the city and talks about the city's ache for its children. But here we, we have... This, this question which it's caused me to... God, God, how, how can I help everyone in this church to go yes to Jesus? How can I help every teenager in this church say yes to Jesus and no to drugs? Yes to Jesus, no to alcohol. Yes to Jesus, no to nicotine. Yes to Jesus and no to fornication. How can I do that? How can I make Jesus a treasure far greater than the things that the world treasures? How can I do that? How can I wrap that up and give it to you right now, young people? How can I do that? 
And as I thought about it, I thought of my hero, F.W. Boreham. And F.W. Boreham, toward the end of his life, he said, I have one regret, and if I had my time over, I would do this differently. I would preach more about God, not about what he'd done, not about any of his, but, but who he is, so that others might, he said, catch a glimpse of the Saviour. And by just capturing a glimpse, he said, I'm convinced that people would turn to the Saviour if they just got a glimpse of him, just a glimpse of his beauty, just a glimpse of his goodness, his kindness, his love. If people just got a glimpse of him, I know they turned to him, F.W. Boreham wrote in the latter years of his life. I hope he's right. But I fear that, that even that is not a sure guarantee. And the reason I'm not sure that's a, a sure guarantee is because as we ponder this question, because if, if you want to come to know Christ, it means that you've got to repent. And what does it take to repent? It takes, first thing, humility. That's the first thing, humility. And if you've ever wondered why, well, God, I want to meet with you. I want to hear you. And, God, and then the next thing, someone comes along and speaks with you or shares with you or does something. And you think, well, no, God, I don't want them. I want you. I, want, I just want... Because I think God uses other people to minister his grace to us because it takes humility to receive it from another person. I, I think coming to church on Sunday is an act of humility. The person who says, oh, I just can't handle people. I just want me and God is a proud person. And don't think I'm being unkind. I'm being truthful. So what is it going to take to get someone to repent? Man, I'd love to think that Mr. Borum's right. I mean, I think he's right in just about everything else. I hope he's right in this one. But I'm not so sure. And the reason I'm not sure is because I see enough evidence in Scripture where people did meet with God. I mean, Adam. Did anyone know God better than Adam? Did anyone, did anyone experience a closeness with God closer than Adam? And he still fell. What does that tell us? And I know that people think, well, Adam sinned the moment he ate of that fruit. I know he didn't sin the moment he ate of that fruit. He sinned the moment he decided to eat the fruit. The moment he decided to eat the fruit, he was declaring who's going to tell him what to do. And that's pride. So someone could meet with God and experience his great love. Can you think of anyone else who experienced that? Well, we could look at Israel. We could see that God came down on the mountain, it says, and the whole mountain shook and, and there was lightning and thunder and people heard the voice of God. I mean, an entire nation of people saw it. They heard it. They experienced it. And within weeks, they made a golden calf and bowed down to it and forsook God. What is it going to take for someone to repent, to humble themselves and to turn to God and acknowledge that he's right? Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 18, the opening line. You are right. What is it going to take for someone to do that? We look at, we look at some who, who experience that and yet in their pride refuse to repent, which means to surrender, which also surrender means to worship. They refuse to surrender to him. And because of that, they will face eternal consequences. And I think of 
not only is what, what, what we're reading here, Jerusalem, I mean, they experienced Jeremiah the prophet speaking on behalf of God and he prophesied things that were fulfilled precisely within weeks, some within months, some within years, and this is the, the daddy of them, the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And Jeremiah has been prophesying that for, for decades and they called him an idiot, they called him a fool, they scorned him, they mocked him, they said he was... A false prophet, and yet it's happened. And even then, they still didn't repent. <laughs> so you could, you could marvel at this. So the next time you think, oh, I really want a close encounter with God, please pray that. That's good. But don't think that alone is going is to replace you saying, God, I humble my heart. I surrender my heart to you. I give you my heart. Have your way in my life. Young people, that's what I hope you do as a result of today. I hope you do that. I hope you walk out of this place going, Jesus is the greatest treasure, the greatest delight in my life. It's not sex. It's not alcohol. It's not drugs. It's not smoking. It's not gaming. It's not any of that stuff. It's Jesus. I'll give all of that up for Jesus. I hope that's what happens in your heart. And the reason I, I know that, that it's not experiencing the love of God that will get you over the line. It's not experiencing the power of God as we heard Matthew share, it's not seeing the miracles of God, it's not any of that. And the, the, the greatest warning that it's not any of that is not just, as I said, not just Israel, but Judas Iscariot. Get a glimpse of the Saviour. He had three and a half years of gazing upon the Saviour. Three and a half years of walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, experiencing Jesus. And even in that close proximity, his heart was still religious, which is all about Appearances. That's what it means to be religious. It's just appearances. Whereas true spirituality is a change on the inside. And even when you drop the ball, even when you stumble, even when you say, I will not deny you. All may deny you. I will not deny you even under the point of death. Last words of Peter before he denied Jesus. Judas Iscariot, can you, can you believe it? Three and a half years, seeing the dead raised, seeing the blind eyes opened, seeing Jesus touch women appropriately to heal them, to set them free, to see little girls raised from the dead. Talitha, come, little girl, I tell you, arise. And Judas saw it and he still had a heart that would not surrender to God would not yield to God. My greatest fear as a pastor is that it's possible for you to attend this church, pray the words of a prayer without actually praying that prayer and still not come to know him. Still not come to know God. You see, repentance is an act of humbling our heart, acknowledging our rebellion. How many of us describe ourselves as born rebels? But that's what we are. We want it our way. We want to do what we want. And we want no one telling us what to do. Am I the only one? That's a rebel. I was born one. Chances are some of you may have been as well. And repentance begins when you own that. When you go, I am that. God, you are right. Lamentations. Chapter 1, first line of verse 18. The Lord is in the right. The Lord is right. There's 
a need that our soul has to be healed because we've rebelled against God and his word. You see, the second line of verse 18 repeats the first line when it says the Lord is in the right. I told you that Hebrews, Israelites, use a form of poetry called parallelism. Line A, then line B repeats it with different words. Well, here's how line B repeats line A. The Lord is in the right. Line B says this, For I have rebelled against his word. It's called parallel negativism. It's stating the first line by stating it the opposite way in the next line. The Lord is in the right because I have rebelled against his word. And it causes an injury to our soul. It causes our hearts to hurt. It causes our lives to ache. And as we'll see in a moment, it's not just our souls that will hurt. So the need for, our, for soul healing is caused when we rebel against his word, rebel against the word of God. See, I have, as a pastor, long withstood the urge to survey this church about things like Bible reading, daily prayer time, because I am so prone to discouragement, I don't know if I could handle the results. But if we don't know what God's word is, how on earth can we keep it? And if you are not someone who is taking God's word every day and prayerfully asking God to shape your soul and heal your soul as a result of what you read, you're missing out. Please do it. It will help you to die well. I could share story after story of people who've been Christians for decades. I go to their deathbeds and they are racked with doubt, racked with uncertainty, racked with fear of death. And it all comes out that much of their decades of Christianity was a facade. The outward appearance was not a reflection of the inner transformation that should have been happening. And, and while I care about your outward appearance, I care that you at least look like a Christian. Please at least behave like one. As Stephen said, it's not just the form, it's the why. It's the inner transformation. And I want you to get it. So here we have this whole deal of our hearts hurt when we rebel against the word of God. So our souls need healing because we have rebelled against God's word. We, we see, as, as we will see in this passage in a moment, that it's not just our souls that, that hurt. And, and not only that, it's not just us who hurts when we sin. When we sin, we hurt others near us. Others become victims of our sin and rebellion. We, we read on in verse 19. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. We, we see that the times of abundance that Israel enjoyed, the times of abundance that Jerusalem enjoyed, didn't last. And that's the problem with what Scripture calls the fleeting pleasures of sin, the temporary pleasures of sin. The biggest problem with the temporary pleasures of sin is that they are temporary. <laughs> Hebrews 11.25 says this, There came a point when Moses said, I will no longer side with the fleeting pleasures of sin. And he made a commitment in his heart to say, 
I'm now going to follow and serve God with my heart. And here's the, here's the thing that, that I guess Scripture is pretty real about, and it's, and it's this. Sin can be really, really pleasurable for a moment. For a moment. It's nothing compared to the eternal consequences of rebellious, fleeting pleasure. How do I convey that to young people? How do I do that? I'm at a loss. I need your prayer support right now to know how to connect to persuade people. Verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me. Hence the title, when you're wrong, you're wrung. When you're in the wrong, your heart will be wrung. Because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. So you hear what Jeremiah is now anthropomorphizing, which means turning the city, as talking through as if he is the city, he's talking as if the city is a person. And he's now expressing this the pain, the physical pain that comes from rebelling against God. The, the physical pain that comes from saying, God, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to have fun and party and I'm going to booze and I'm going to smoke and I'm going to do drugs and I'm going to do porn and I'm going to do whatever I want because, yay, I'm in control. And you probably don't even really care that much about it. And then the day comes and you realise he cares a lot about that, all of that. And it's not because he's a party pooper. It's because every one of those things hurt people. And here, speaking on behalf of the city, Jeremiah talks about the distress that's internal that becomes external. He was feeling physical pain, physical pain. And sin and guilt causes negative physical symptoms. And some of us have seen people that have gone through that. We've seen people that have developed all kinds of things that have started in their thinking. It's affected their emotional well-being. It's affected their physical health. Thank God that Christ forgives, Christ heals, Christ gives a brand new start. We come, verse 21. They heard my groaning, yet there is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. And we see the antidote, we see in scripture, the antidote to guilt and shame is repentance, which is humbling ourselves, confessing our sin, and asking God for his forgiveness. Next verse, verse 22, last verse of this chapter. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. So there's the physical nature of it as well. And here we have what, what we might call an imprecatory prayer. The city is saying, hey, <laughs> Okay, I've done wrong, and I'm paying the price for it. But those who have inflicted additional hurt upon me, they've done wrong too. Make sure you deal with them justly. That's an imprecatory prayer. Well, in this passage, these five verses that we've just read, what do we learn? Well, we learn something about Jeremiah. I want you to think about how you might have handled this situation. You've been prophesying for four decades that this would happen. You faced four decades of ridicule. You faced four decades of scorn. You faced four decades of people calling you all the names under the sun, including false prophet, which must have hurt so deeply. And then the big daddy prophecy that you've been saying for that period of time happens. What, what would lamentation sound like if you'd been writing it? You want to know what it would sound like if I was writing it? It'd be very short. I told you so. Amen. 
That'd be about it. But that's not Jeremiah. So what do we learn about Jeremiah? He's known as the weeping prophet, not the gloating prophet. Huh. He's, ma- he's maintained a certain element of humility that's admirable, incredibly admirable. We see Jeremiah sympathising, empathising, feeling compassion for these people. What do we learn about God in this passage? What we learn about God is that God didn't want any of this to happen. He didn't want the people to experience pain. He doesn't want you to experience pain that comes from rebellion. He didn't want it. We see that God wants us to repent. And no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, and even with the, maybe the hard things that I've said this morning, particularly young people, no matter what I've done, no matter, no matter what you've said, no matter who you've done it with, can I tell you right now, God is the God who forgives. God is the God who gives a fresh start. God is the God who offers you brand newness. And you're not a million miles from God. You're just one prayer of repentance away from God. Isn't that good? And that's really my hope. If, if people get that, you'll realise you're not too far from God. So what do we see about ourselves? We see in this passage that if we think we don't need God or His forgiveness or His grace, we're kidding ourselves. And I'm pleading with you to stop. The guilt of our sin will bring us low. It's not a good path. But God offers us freedom from that guilt when we repent. What a powerful message. More from Dr. Corbett in Lamentations next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, When You're Wrong, You're Rung, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media. PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania, 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.